Welcome to A Word in Season with Doug Strinker and Friends. We share good news and godly wisdom to empower you to be salt and light in every season of life. How do you make decisions? God gave Frank Kelly III five words that have become his decision-making grid. Doug and Frank discuss the importance of being spirit-led in business, community, family, and every other area of your life. You'll learn the importance of faithfulness and be equipped for greater success as you follow his lead. If we can pray for you as you seek God's will, email your request at prayer at somebodycares.org. After the episode, check out our show notes on your favorite streaming platform and visit a awordinseasonpodcast.org to download a free 30-day devotional that will encourage you to draw closer to the Lord. If you've gleaned anything from this podcast, consider paying it forward with a gift at somebodycares.org. Now let's join our host, Doug Stringer. Frank Kelly III serves as CEO of Kelly & Associates Insurance Group and Kelly & Associates Financial Services and Kelly Benefits Payroll and Kelly Interval Solutions, collectively known as Kelly Benefits. Kelly Benefits has evolved into one of the nation's largest and fastest growing providers of benefits, administration and technology, broker and consulting services, payroll solutions, and comprehensive tools and strategies to serve businesses of all sizes. Everyone who has a successful place in life, be it in the marketplace or the ministry, or because marketplace is ministry to those who love the Lord, there's a journey to get where we are. And for for those of us on this call, part of that journey has been the calling of God. So tell us a little bit about your journey and how you came into the revelation of who Christ was in your life and how you were able to walk out that life in Christ in what you do. Well, thanks, Doug. Honored to share. Feel free to interrupt me at any time if I get going, get excited about it, like uh, anybody else on the call, I think. Born in Philadelphia, grew up in Baltimore. My parents had moved there from Philly. My dad had been born in Brooklyn, ended up growing up in Philadelphia. Both my mom and dad are from Philly, ended up in Baltimore. I have three brothers and a foster sister and grew up in a pretty traditional, maybe Irish, Italian, Catholic family. You know, we did attend church. You know, we believed in God. Ended up as a younger kid, getting very active in sports. By middle school, I was pretty good. Got recruited to go to a local high school, big Catholic high school, to play football. They were the top football program in this state in the area. Ended up getting a little scholarship, which our family needed at the time. My parents had started this small business that I now help run in the basement of our home, actually in a bedroom, then to the basement. So with five kids under the age of 14, they double mortgaged their house and started this small insurance business, providing health insurance to small businesses who couldn't get access to it on their own by pooling together. They pulled and uh, set up these pools and then build and collected premium and then paid carriers and became a, a middleman, if you will, and created value and efficiency in the process. But while they were doing that in the basement, I was running footballs and in high school started playing lacrosse and somewhere between seventh and eighth grade, I would say sport went from being a game to a God for me, little G, obviously God. A lot of my significance and value came from my performance there. I was also starting to make decisions that were moving me further from God not closer to them at all. I often use the analogy of lifting weights. When you first lift weights, your hands get sore, you get, you know, blisters, and then those blisters turn into calluses and then it doesn't hurt anymore. And that's kind of what was happening in my life with sin. I didn't really understand the impact of sin on my relationship with God because I never really thought of it as a relationship. I thought of it as kind of a religious observance. So ended up going to Cornell University, got recruited, played two years of football and four years of lacrosse there. And it was there that God really began to work on my heart. A few years before I ended up at Cornell, um, and actually even before high school, my parents had had a spiritual awakening through the charismatic renewal in the Catholic church in a little side room in the parish we attended. They didn't even meet in any significant room. They were kind of a sideshow. So my parents were learning and growing, certainly not Bible scholars or anything, but my dad began to did talk to me, you know, would say, Frank, until your relationship with God is your priority, you're not going to find peace. And kind of went in one ear, went out the other. But when I got to Cornell, I um, was playing, again, the two sports was partying and carousing and trying to do my work and all that. I just was moving further from any concept of relationship with God and ended up my sophomore year there, a guy I played football with, a wrestler began talking to me about having a relationship. It didn't make sense. But the long and short of it, God used some injuries, a coach, a Hall of Fame coach who passed recently, had a big impact on my life at the time, kind of what I thought was negatively humbling me, but brought me to a place where I actually 
surrendered and committed my life to Christ uh, February 1984, my sophomore year at Cornell in the middle of lacrosse practice. So there's more to that story. But at the end of a line drill, I said, if I never play football or lacrosse again, I need you. I don't know if I'm supposed to receive you or believe you. I don't even know what I was supposed to do, but I asked him to come and my relationship mm-hmm. began. And uh, it was interesting. That night I went home, called my dad. We talked on the phone and he said, Frank, you know, the most important thing you can do, the most practical thing I can tell you in this is just praise God for everything. Praise him. When you're walking across, praise him and thank him that you can see, that you can walk, that you're at Cornell, that you're on the team. And I thought I was going to start and play as a freshman. I did. And I went through all this humbling time. Here I am on third, fourth string as a sophomore with injuries that continued to bother me. And this is what God used to bring me to himself. But I went to practice that next day and coach was all over me and my legs still hurt. But I had peace for the first time. I had true peace. And that began this relationship. A few months later, God chose to give lacrosse back in a supernatural way. It wasn't a quid pro quo. And I've been very involved kind of as a missionary to the lacrosse world, which I don't even know if everybody on the call knows what lacrosse is, but it's a game that was first played by the Native American Indians back in the 15, 1600s. And uh, it was a, a, a really a war game that was really to avoid war and settle thing, conflict. So uh, the Iroquois, a nation or six nations under the Iroquois would use lacrosse as a game to settle, like, you know, instead of fighting for the water rights or the land rights, why don't we play this game? And some French missionaries saw them playing and uh, they were using these big wooden sticks that were bowed and bent and then had netting like leather, a cow gut. Uh, and they had a, a ball of stone covered in leather that was like a ball. And they played this big game um, and they called it the creator's game. They played to please the creator and they played to settle conflict. And it's interesting. I'm in the process of recording some stories on how God used the creator's game to help me come to know the creator. And now that's one area of ministry in my life is using lacrosse, the creator's game and those who play and trying to connect them to the creator into a personal life-changing relationship. I think I'll stop there. Let you ask another question. There's more to it. Obviously, you know, I began to grow in that relationship. My junior year at Cornell, I ended up getting in a, a Bible study. That guy I played football with Jeff Caliguire had Talk to me about relationship didn't make sense. Then I committed. It began to make sense, but I had never had fellowship to my junior year. And once I had fellowship, everything changed. And when I say fellowship, exposure to God's word, the reality and the power uh, of God's word spoken began to change my life. You know, and it's still changing it. Hopefully, I'll just share one more thing, and I will stop. Um, Starting a, a, a Bible study for athletes that exploded, and, and Matt referenced that I have a heart to lead people to Christ. It's interesting. My junior year, as I started going to this Bible study, I invited a guy from a lacrosse team to join me. This was before it was the athletes. This was this fraternity sorority study I went to with Jeff. And it was probably the worst invitation ever. He was a teammate. I'm like, Hey, Kevin, I'm going to, you know, I was kind of quietly whispering. I'm kind of going to this Bible thing. And I think you would like it. And I was thinking of inviting you, but if I were you, I probably wouldn't go. So I can understand why you wouldn't come. And he finally said, are you inviting me or not? I said, well, I, yeah, I guess I am. He goes, all right, I'll come. And I'm like, okay. And so he came and that night, the first person I invited to anything had a radical surrender, conversion, commitment to Christ that night. And then God paired me and him as he often does. He sends people out in twos. And we started to invite people to this fraternity Bible study every week. We'd bring at least two or three people right out of the bars, right out of fraternities and it exploded. And then we convinced these two guys, Jeff and this other guy who were leading the fraternity sorority Bible study to lead a study for athletes at our big fraternity house at Cornell. And they agreed. We got a couple guys together. Then Jeff backed out the week before and said, Frank, we think you and Kevin can um, should lead the study. And we did. And it exploded. We didn't know what we were doing. We'd only been to Bible study eight times in our lives. But that's the way the Holy Spirit works. Right. It was right in that time frame that I learned about the Holy Spirit, who the Holy Spirit was, what the Holy Spirit did, what it meant to be filled. I read a book by Bill Bright called Holy Spirit, Key to Supernatural Living that totally transformed my life. And that led to that Bible study for athletes that exploded. So I've been involved in this ministry in lacrosse and through a fellowship of Christian athletes and others, just using sport to share the word and doing it in our city of Baltimore and, and around the world. Well, that's amazing. You know, you've said uh, some things there that really resonated with me when you got me when you said lifting weights. I love those analogies. The other thing you got me on was wrestling. I was a a wrestling fanatic back in my high school days. And something I wanted to ask you, because in that revelation of coming to the Lord, and and I remember back in the 80s, the the charismatic, uh, Catholic charismatic movement. In fact, in Houston, we have St. Nicholas Charismatic Center that uh, Father Paulson at the time, uh, in those days, had really brought forth the, the charismatic movement or the renewal within the Catholic Church. We saw that 
move into the Lutheran church, Methodist church. We saw a renewal. It was like one of those suddenly moments in the early 80s where the Holy Spirit began to move. And it really did bring down dividing walls that people were crossing racial, denominational, generational lines. It was able to bring us together in the commonality of the presence of God and worship was born out of all of that. It seems to me that we need one of those suddenly moments again today. Don't you think so, Frank? You know, we don't all completely understand how the Holy Spirit works, but we know the Holy Spirit is a person. We know the Holy Spirit is God. We know that the Holy Spirit's all-powerful, all-knowing, everywhere present. And I think, you know, the Holy Spirit's what transforms hearts and minds, right? The guide, the comforter, the healer. And I, th I think we need a powerful move of the Holy Spirit. We see it all around the us, the, all that's going on, the craziness. And I know I'm constantly asking the spirit to move in different ways there. When the Lord did all this work in you during your time at Cornell, the tendency is for a lot of my friends that are business owners or CEOs or executives or marketplace leaders, there was at some point, the first thing they think is I need to go to seminary. I, I need to do it the vocational route of ministry, but yet uh, coming to a revelation that, that what you do is ministry and it gives you an opportunity to do far more than maybe if you'd have done it the typical way. How did you come into that process of going into what you're doing now? So Kevin and I started this Bible study for athletes our, our junior year um, and exploded. Our senior year, we moved, literally, I, moved, I got elected into an office position in my fraternity. I like to be in the world, not of it, right? And I felt that I could reach more people for Christ by being in the fraternity, which was a completely crazy party house. And I was the leader of that. And then now I'm in the Lord. And one of the verses that convicted me about the Holy Spirit is in Ephesians 5, 18. It says, don't get drunk with wine. You know, it leads to being out of control or dissipation. Instead, instead be filled with the Holy Spirit. So I stopped drinking in college. I, I wasn't getting drunk. I was asking the Holy Spirit to fill me. And I'd gone from kind of party man to spirit filled man. And was leading the study that that grew. And I, once you're filled with the spirit, I think generally you're open to learning and you're learning through God's word. And then I began to read stories of other believers and read the story about uh, Jim Elliott, who was a missionary who was ultimately killed, him and his friends, trying to reach these Aukin Indians. And, you know, Jim Elliott, I think, wrote, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. I was really convicted by that. And then I started reading someone randomly gave me a book about C.T. Studd. It was called mm. C.T. Studd, Cricketer and Pioneer. And C.T. Studd was a missionary out of Cambridge University, Oxford, Cambridge. And he was part of what was called the Cambridge Seven in the 1800s. It was seven guys who all came to a personal faith in Christ in college, who all came, you know, were, were athletes, student athletes, and had platforms, but all went to the mission field, like full time. And C.T. Studd went to China and Africa. And I was like, oh, my, you know, India. I was so challenged by them. So after I graduated Cornell, I went to Japan with a crew, Camps Crusade for Christ and Athletes in Action. And that Bible study I started for athletes, they said, hey, call it AIA. I'm like, I don't care what we call it. You know, I, I didn't know what crew was. I didn't know what any organization was. And what's funny, the first Bible study I went to a junior year, they said, turn in your Bible to Ephesians. I didn't know where Ephesians was in the Bible. I had a little Bible I'd gotten during this sacrament called confirmation and I opened it, but I could never get to any verse. My first two Bible studies, I never got to a single reference the leader asked me to get to. And my mom ended up sending me a Bible with big tabs sticking out the side. And then I got, got around for a little bit. So I end up in Japan, you know, was exploring vocational missions, you know, was just there for summer, actually interviewed to go on staff with um, athletes in action and campus crusade crew. One day I was on the beach um, on Sunday. They took the Sabbath seriously. I was living with a Japanese family, sleeping on the floor, went to this little Japanese church, couldn't understand any of this English, the Japanese, very scotchy little, you know, but on Sunday we, they would go to this beach area and we're at this beach area. It was in Okinawa. We got assigned to different areas and the Lord spoke to me through his word really clearly. I was sitting there and I just was reading in the book of Acts chapter one, verse eight. And I was just reading Acts that day just for, you know, uh, again, Sabbath, Sunday, a little few minutes. And the words jumped off the page, Jesus, before he ascended into heaven, we know he ascended on the 40th day. Catholic tradition, they celebrated Ascension Sunday, Sunday a week ago. This son, past Sunday was Pentecost Sunday. But on the 40th day after the resurrection, Jesus ascended into heaven. And the last thing he said to his followers is you're going to receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And you're going to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the remotest parts of the earth. And I had received the power of the Holy Spirit. And I love being a witness. I, I mean, it was natural. It was fun. I invited people. They came, you know, and God would do things. 
But what really jumped out at me was to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the remotest parts of the earth. And as soon as I read it right away, Jerusalem, go back to Baltimore, go home. It was not audible, but totally clear. Okay. I think I'm supposed to go home, start Jerusalem first. And then I was sitting there and before I left, my dad had come to me and said, Hey, Frank, you're the oldest of the kids. And feel like God's blessed the business. I'd love for you to spend at least a year in the business before you go off and save the world. I had really no desire at all to go into the family business. It was small. It was my mom and dad, three of my friends' moms from the neighborhood worked there, nine to three, Billy's mom, Steve's mom. I, I didn't want to work with Billy's mom, Steve's mom, my mom. You know, I just graduated Cornell and all that. And not that I was that big a deal, but it was only like 10 people, you know, working out a little thing and office. And I'm like, but I was sitting there and after the word Jerusalem, I was just sitting there and a few minutes later, the word business came like really clear business. I'm like, why would I waste that my life doing business? And then the Lord made it just, I, and, I, and then I'm like, okay, I guess I can waste one year of my life. I'll give my dad one year. I can waste one year of my life on something as ridiculous as business, or eternally as insignificant as business. So I guess I'm going to go back to Baltimore and go into business for a year. I'm sitting there. And the next word comes and it's school, schools. I'm like, schools, that makes no sense. Guess what? That makes absolutely no sense. And then I'm there and another word came and the word was lacrosse. And I'm like, that makes no sense. I'm done lacrosse. I ended up having a successful career at Cornell, but there was no pro lacrosse. Made no sense. Then my friends thought I'd gone off the religious deep end. That kind of made sense. I guess maybe I'm supposed to be a witness. And then actually the fifth thing was, something to do with my parents and their friends who I knew were believers, but I didn't think had been trained in how to share their faith. And so I went back home and said, dad, all right, I'll do one year in the business. Went to my high school a few months after I started. And my dad said, Hey, if you're in the business, Frank, what's great about a family business is flexibility. You may not make as much as somewhere else, but you're going to have flexibility and you can do what you want to do. If you want to do these Bible things, you can, if you want to. So I go to the school, convince the Christian brother, the Catholic priest to Anyway, this guy got in trouble for doing terrible things later in life. They looked at me cross-eyed, but we started a Bible study for athletes and they let me do it. And then that led to me coaching lacrosse and then lacrosse, playing lacrosse and then pro lacrosse started. And I get picked up now I'm playing pro lacrosse. So at the end of this first year, I'm working in a business. I'm leading a Bible study for athletes at the high school. I'm now coaching lacrosse. So half the lacrosse team's coming to the Bible study. I'm playing professionally. And then I'm getting to witness to my friends. And I'm, I met with my parents and their five friends who I knew were Catholic believers, but hadn't been trained in how to share their faith. So at the end of the first year, I'm like, oh, I go away every year in August. I'm like, Lord, should I keep doing this? And he's like, I just sensed I, I should. So here I am 35 years later, Doug. I'm the CEO of Kelly Benefits. We have nearly 500 employees in the benefits and payroll space. So God did something beyond anything I could have asked or imagined. When he said school, I started that Bible study for athletes. I learned about an organization called FCA, Fellowship of Christian Athletes. In college, it was AIA. I don't really care about initials, but that was the first huddle in Maryland. We're now in over 300 schools in Maryland through FCA. So when he said school, he meant schools. I didn't. And then lacrosse, we have about a dozen full-time staff missionaries to the lacrosse world here in the U.S. We actually have FCA lacrosse staff now in Ukraine, and Uganda, and Kenya, Singapore. It's, it's kind of crazy. So you would never know because the game's not that big. But all those areas and my friends, by God's grace, I've been able to see a lot of my friends come to know and grow in the Lord. And I just have a heart to connect people to Christ. I just want to connect people to God and God's potential. And I know what it's like to be lost and be found. I know what it's like to be blind and then see. And I know what I just want to help people see the truth and reality of the power of a relationship with God. And again, in Maryland, very Catholic community, you know, Catholic city, a lot of Catholic heritage there. I'll put it that way. And as people who grow up Catholic, you know, a lot of us, we have the pieces to the puzzle. Sometimes we need a little help getting the pieces together in a way that it makes sense and that we have a relationship and then to understand who the Holy Spirit is and be filled and empowered by the Spirit. I'll say one last thing, Doug, because you know, getting to know Matt, what I love about somebody cares is you're taking the, the gospel and word and deed to the streets. It's not just empty words. And I, I like the illustration of the cross, right? But the cross, you know, the vertical part of the cross is longest and then the horizontal is um, a little shorter, right? And I feel like in the faith tradition I grew up in, it was very focused on the horizontal. Everything was the horizontal, really. And then I got more in the evangelical Bible and then it was all focused on the vertical <laughs> and really it's the cross. It's, it's the vertical drives the horizontal. And 
we want to be witnesses in word and deed to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that's where my heart is today. I was looking at a uh, graphic that uh, Jay John from the UK put up on Pentecost Sunday, and I loved it. But it said, it says, Christmas was God with us. Easter was God for us. Pentecost is God in us. Amen. And as I begin to process where we are today and the, just the global challenges we have and the divisiveness and challenges in our own country, we need an outpouring again. We need a suddenly moment that it's not a suddenly to God, but it is suddenly to us. But God has a way of putting things together in ways we don't see. The synchronicity of God in the sense that there's so many connections that we don't see until that Holy Spirit move comes, that awakening or revival or that heart awakening the church has and God shows up. And But you experienced that with your family in the uh, 80s. I think all of us have that encounter, that moment where we get a revelation of the work of the cross. But these suddenly moments is what we need right now. It's like there's probably things God has been putting together that we don't see because we have the optics of what we hear from the news and the world and the global challenges. But I believe God's about to do something if we would posture ourselves in humility and be aligned at high noon with God for him to do something. And it's obviously what God has done with you, Frank, and your family. Outside of business, FCA, all these other things, you also are very engaged in helping to raise millions of dollars in, for missions and other campaigns uh, there in Baltimore, as well as things going on around the world. I know you were a co-chair for helping up missions, and you helped raise $61 million inspiring a hope campaign building, a new 125,000 square foot center. So how do you get involved with all these things? You know, we're all trying to maybe follow the Spirit's lead, and we got to be wise in what we say yes to and no to. And like through our company and, and individually, I, I believe in what I call four-pillar giving, locally, regionally, nationally, internationally. So Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the remotest parts of the earth. And, you know, we've been blessed, and we try to be a blessing in, in, in our city, too. You know, I've been involved with youth sports in the city. There's an incredible program called the FCA Park Heights Saints Youth Football Program. Ten teams, 25 kids on each team. Kids, 95% of the kids coming from single-parent homes in very poor, minority, at-risk communities. And the gospel going out and trying to make a difference for the kids and the cheerleaders. And then that's on the west side. On the east side of Baltimore, Matt knows it well. Melvin really knows it well. There, there was a mission that, that goes back to the 1800s, like 1885. And... It was founded as an overnight shelter for homeless men. About 25, 28 years ago, a friend of mine had, was a pastor. His wife had a major addiction issue. So he started going to Al-Anon and it just didn't, you know, she didn't come out of the addiction and he ended up resigning his pastorate. And in the interim, took a part-time role in development at this thing called Helping Up Mission. And little did he know, next thing you know, he became head of development and then the director resigned. He was interim director. And now he's been the director for the last 28 years. And he saw this overnight shelter. Men would come in, get a cup of coffee or dinner, shower, and then be in fellowship, half of them drunk or high. Next day, get up and be back on the street, you know, with a cup of coffee. And then, you know, they just would go back and get drunk or high and come back to this mission overnight. And there were still some, some stories, but he began to implement a 12-step, 12-month addiction recovery program alongside the overnight shelter. Well, today there's 400 men in the 12-step, 12-month addiction recovery, no charge. And there's about 50 to 100 men that do the overnight shelter. But there was nothing for women in Baltimore dealing with addiction, very little, like little pockets. And a lot of women dealing with addiction don't get help because they will not leave their children. And they'll do what they have to do, even maintain the addiction and all that goes with it to make sure their kids survive. And Helping Out Mission had this vision to develop a facility that would house women and their children while these women are getting help for their addiction. Started out as a $40 million campaign, grew to over a $60 million campaign because the city allowed it to be bigger. Gail and I said no to it, by the way, dog at first. Frank, would you like to do this? No, thank you. I really don't want to do this campaign. And look, we were just chair. We were voluntary chairmen chair people of it. God was in it clearly just to confirm that. And we know God owns everything, but we were kind of stuck at a, a pretty good number, like $22 million, but for like nine months. And I'm like, and at that point it was a 45, $40 million campaign. I'm like, what are we going to do? Are we going to return people's money? You know, you know, your name's affiliated with it. I, I mean, at the end of the day, it's like, God, this is your thing. It's not my thing. So, but we were just frustrated, concerned, and we got Bob Gaiman, the director, calls me, goes, Frank, you're not going to believe this. Um, we got an $18 million anonymous check in the mail. 
So they get a blank, a, a check, $18 million anonymous check through this National Christian Foundation. Christian Foundation says, hey, we have a client who uses us for a donor advice fund. They've asked to remain anonymous. And Bob even said, his, his assistant called him and said, Bob, you're not going to believe it. I think we, you know, we just got an $18 million check. And Bob's like, you mean $1,800? No, you mean $18,000? You mean eight, you know, $1.8 million? No, it's $18 million. They And so Bob didn't call me until they deposited the check and it cleared. So once that happened, they then came to me and said, hey, we're almost at our goal. So we're going to raise the number to 60. And I'm like, what? You know, you know, whatever. But God and God, we raised $63 million, but God did it. You know, Gail and I were just, you know, we have resources or contacts we contributed not monster money like that but yeah it's fun to see god at work and now um the, the ribbon was caught in december there's now about 50 women it can house up to 200 women up to 50 children it's caddy corner it's in an interesting part of east baltimore um, called jonestown which was the original settlement of baltimore near johns hopkins hospital again an area where there's a lot of crime and violence at different times but it's beautiful and we're so excited for these women and children. Obviously, you're very engaged in being tangible expressions of Christ in the community, being engaged in the community, you're Jerusalem as well, even though you have a, a business that's a national business with 500 employees. You had mentioned you, you have to discern what you can do and what you can't do, and everything can be good, we can bless, but there are things we know are assignments. And I found that the more successful a person is or perceived to be in business, or as a faith leader, or as a pastor, then all of a sudden, everybody comes out of the woodwork wanting your time, and you don't never know who you want. <laughs> they want money. Well, I have a very good friend. You read probably read my book, Leadership Awakening. I tell a story about a friend of mine who's one of the wealthiest men in Asia who came to me in 1990 at a businessmen's luncheon I was speaking at in Malaysia. And he said, I don't know who I can trust. I've become a Christian. And so we became friends in all these years. Uh, a person at that level needing who he knows he can trust because he deals with presidents and prime ministers and business leaders and people want jobs and everybody wants something. And yet he wanted to know he can go to some people that, he, that don't want anything. He said the Lord even spoke to him about that in the church one day worshiping God. And the Lord said, why do you worship me? And he said, well, I'm in church. I, I, I'm worshiping you. This is what we do. And the Lord said, why do you really worship me? Is it for what I can do for you or for who I am? And uh, he recognized immediately because that's how he felt about so many relationships. So how do you maneuver through the discernment and the wisdom that you can impart to pastors or business leaders right now about the wisdom you've had to learn and how to be cordial with people, but at the same time, knowing how to discern what you can and cannot do? That's a good question, Doug. I don't know that I've done it really well, but I'll tell you how I've tried to live it. You know, I try to run everything through the grid of the great commandment and the great commission. Obviously the great commandment, love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, love your neighbor as yourself, love God completely, love others compassionately, love yourself correctly. So, and then go and share the gospel, the good news with others in a relevant way. So I try to look through the grid of that. I just try to see where God's at work, like sense is, is God at work in this for me? Is there a right connection? I use my wife as a sounding board for a lot. She's a woman of faith, trying to discern what to say yes to, what to say no to. You know, sometimes through our company and our business and our family, you know, our giving, we try to be, it's one of our values is generosity. Another value is respect. Like we respect people. So I take people's calls. I know a lot of people, the way they handle people who reach out to them, if they don't want to talk to them, they just don't return their call or they ignore or they don't return their email. And that's not the way I do it. Um, out of respect, I will return people's calls, which then <laughs> open me up to conversation where you can get persuaded to maybe give or whatever. But, you know, God owns it all. He doesn't need our money. I have some friends who are like, hey, I work so I can give money away. And it's like, eh, that's not why I do it. I mean, it's one of the things God's allowed us to do. And I, I'm thankful for it. He doesn't need our money. Even 18 million, that's a lot, but it's not a lot to him, right? Billions, not even a lot to God, a zillion. So, um, and, and I journal, Lord, what do you want me to do? Speak to me. And then just try to discern, you know, and some things are collective with my brothers. We, I'm equal partners with three brothers and they're all believers. And so we, sometimes when it comes to corporate giving, we collectively discern and agree or not. And then other things are up to me. I, I mean, our biggest asset, I think, for all of us, too, is our time, right? So I, I say we can give our time, we can give our talent, we can give our treasure, we can give our testimony, 
which I'm getting to do today. We can give truth away. I like to give truth away. Like Doug, maybe if I had your book, I'd give it to you. I've got a closet full of books. I'd give truth away. And then we can all give thanks. And the thing we're probably most limited, we're all constrained with time. And, and that's the one thing we got to use our best discernment about. And it was interesting when I said no to the helping up mission about being the chair, campaign co-chair. And then I went home and talked to Gail and prayed about it. I'm like, I think the Lord wants us to do it. I don't really want to do this, but but it was such a blessing. Sometimes the Lord makes it really clear right away. We know like in our heart, wow, this is an alignment. I also tend to run things through the grid of the five things from my Acts 1-8 experience in Japan. So I'm still discerning. I feel like that might be coming to an end, those five, but I'm not sure that all five, but you know, hey, how does it relate to business, school, lacrosse, friends, and sharing the gospel? And that's my little world view of it today. Well, I'll make sure that uh, I get Matt uh, a case of my uh, leadership awakening books you can use for your giveaways. Leonard Ray used to do that with one of my books. You get books by the case from me. And I found people came from all over the world to Houston and saying, Leonard Ravenhill said, I had to read such and such book of yours before I go see him. I'm thinking, what? Leonard Ravenhill said that? But you said something about time, talent, and treasuries. And I learned from Dr. Edwin Lewis Cole, who was like a spiritual dad who started the Christian Men's Network around the world. And he said, time, like light, makes things manifest. Given enough time, the true character of an individual or entity will be made known. You have been investing in your Jerusalem for so long. And I know with all the difficulties and challenges of years of just the economic challenges, the divisiveness, and yet the news doesn't report some of the good things of relationship intentionality that's taking place. But how do you stay focused with all the challenges Baltimore has been through in such a historic city, such a, a forerunner city in so many ways, how do you keep your eyes fixed on what God has promised you in your Jerusalem without becoming so discouraged? Because discouragement is like a powerful drug. And if, yeah. we, if we discourage them, yeah. we don't move on to the destination. How do you do that? Yeah, that's another great question, Doug. Just one more thing about discernment real quick. Like if I sense something's like a really important, like generational, like major decision, I definitely am going to fast and pray on it. Definitely. You know, multi, multi-day fast if it's really important. And, and I haven't even done that in a couple of years. I fasted, but I haven't like had like, oh my gosh, I got to make this really important decision. But I do believe God speaks to us clearly through that when we dedicate that time. It, look at Matt and I are, and Melvin Russell, we're teammates in the gospel. Most importantly, God has planted us both in Baltimore or all three of us in Baltimore. So that's our Jerusalem, right? We've met monthly for probably three years, maybe longer. One Friday morning a month, like nine to noon, prayed together and processed God's word together about these issues. And out of that group, about a year and a half ago, I felt led to start a prayer circle we called the Baltimore Business Leaders Prayer Circle. We've been meeting once a month just for an hour, primarily on Zoom, but I've got 12 pretty high-level CEOs that have agreed, and we gather, share for a little bit of a personal faith story, some perspective on scripture, and then pray for our city. And at times, it, I think all of us as business people have felt like, what's going on? Is it worth it? You know, we're, we're giving money, we're doing programs, we're uh, now we're praying and um, we're seeing this violence and this death. And we've been trying to discern through the spirit, like learning what part is spiritual, what part socioeconomic. You know, we've looked at Baltimore first, all the things that happened, the first things that like, there's like almost like a hundred things that happened in Baltimore before it happened in any other city. Some good, some not, you know, what part do we play in the things that were negative? We're trying to discern. The question you asked, I should almost ask back to you, what are you doing not to get discouraged? You got someone like Matt, who's a worker, who just shows up and says, hey, it's a bad day yesterday, but I'm going to go make a positive difference today. Melvin was a lieutenant colonel in the police department for decades. You know, we have the CEO of Baltimore City Schools. This woman, Sonia Sonalisi, is still terrible for her. I mean, she's under constant scrutiny. The schools are a mess. She's got like, I'd say one and a half hands tied behind her back. Um, her board, you know, is not picked by her. Half her board is focused on radical agenda items that it's been really hard. And, and we have a, a government, well, we had a former elected official ran for city council that president didn't win. And, but we're praying, we're like the spheres, I'm a business sphere, there's an education sphere, the government praying, 
and discerning and trying to be faithful to move forward. That's where I've been and we've been in Baltimore. In Christ, we can always outlive our adversity and even our adversaries if we just keep our focus and not let the circumstance dictate to us who we are. Individually, all of us have been through challenges. I think what drives most of us to keep us going is not what we do so much is the passion behind why we do what we do. And the ultimate goal is to see the kingdom of God expand in people's lives to be changed and transformed. That keeps us moving. That little testimonies of someone's life that's been touched. People see you as this very successful organization and businessman touching the nation and impacting nations. Have there been a specific one or two times that and I call this the unexpected detours? where we're confronted with an unexpected detour that knocks the wind out of us. And how did you overcome that moment in your life to keep doing what God's called you to do? Sure. (laughs) Well, I'll go one personal and one business. You know, personally, you know, my wife and I were dealing with pretty significant fertility issue. Really had to pray through and discern appropriate next steps. And this was a week of fasting for me. And it was a detour and tricky through that. I felt God led, confirmed, and, and we have two children, two boys, natural birth, and two, two children adopted. Through that detour, our family maybe isn't as traditional as others, but it's beautiful. I could give you more detail, but that's the one. And because of the fertility challenge, it led us to discuss and evaluate adoption. Because we were evaluating adoption, we kind of bought in, and then we got pregnant twice, and then we did adopt internationally. The other would be in business. Uh, it's happened twice where it happened in like 90, 91. I've been in like five years. We were up to 30 employees, went through a really tricky time, some financial issues, uh, just mistakes that were made. And it actually put me from a sales role into a leadership, operational leadership role. We had to let like 10 people of 30 go. It was really hard because we knew everybody well. And then in 2008, nine, again, very, very unexpected. Um, we had a key leader, executive uh, leader, leave uh, in the finance role again. And this leader had made some really bad decisions, not not us unknowingly. It was very close. uh, And our auditing firm missed these decisions, missed these uh, issues, which put us in a situation. We had to come up with a lot of cash money in a short period of time, had to borrow money from some friends and very difficult situation. But again, what the enemy meant for evil, God used for good. And we just got on our knees and begged God for grace. And there were things we couldn't see. Like all the time in all of our life, there's things happening around us we don't see or fully comprehend or even know are going on. But God does because he's all powerful, all knowing and everywhere present. So he saw what we couldn't and didn't. And so what we endured for about a year maybe less than, felt longer than that, but what we endured for that period of time led to a lot of our growth today. So that's a, an individual one. And so my family now, my older, our oldest son is 30 and married four years, has a, a little grandson, Quinn, FX Kelly five, by the way. And um, he's still wow. about six months. And then our second son, Stephen Patrick, just got married six months ago. He plays professional lacrosse too at a high level uh, in the premier lacrosse league. And then our daughter Jackie is a Korean born adoptee junior in college and our youngest son JK who we adopted at two and a half Korean born kid is is a high level lacrosse player is going to Cornell University to play lacrosse believe it or not where I went which is crazy isn't that crazy and then you know in our business um between me and my three brothers we we have 21 children 15 boys six girls and there's two what we call generation three boys or kids in the business Um, my nephew David Jr my nephew Johnny and I have two sons that I think are going to come in to the business as well. But, you know, a lot of these things have come out of, you know, some challenging situations that at the time you're like, oh, my God, you know, what's going to happen here? God has been faithful. One of the things you talked about, your five pieces of your grid. What were those five pieces again? And then share with us how we can maybe look for the grid in our own lives to be able to continue yeah. on in the times we're going through. I didn't choose the grid. And when you referenced long term plan, like I didn't even have a long-term plan for me. In the summer of 1986 in Japan, God spoke through Acts 1.8. He often speaks through his word. And sometimes he speaks more clearly than others, right? We've all been through times where I'm reading the word and it's dry and I'm like, I don't even remember what I just read. And other times the word jumps and you're like, oh my gosh, you're writing notes, right? Because it's like, it spoke right to me. Um, But for me, through Acts 1.8, you know, you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit comes, you'll be my witness. Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and then the five things were just were uh, business, school, lacrosse, friends, and 
training others and sharing the gospel. And I've been trying to live out those five mandates. Like I've just tried to be faithful to the call. So the word for me, I think if I had one word, I would probably want to describe my life would be faithful, full of faith (laughs) and faithful to what God's asked me to do. So there's lots of times I do things because I'm just saying, Hey, just be faithful. Just show up, quit complaining or, you know, just do what you're supposed to do. I think I would ask the Holy Spirit to speak. I wouldn't take for granted. I, I guess this would be in my heart. What are some things I learned about the Holy Spirit? I could talk about that a lot, but unconfessed sin is like a wet blanket on the Holy Spirit. So we know the symbols of the Holy Spirit are the flame or the upside down dove. So when the Holy Spirit comes, it comes like fire. It comes peace. But, you know, the, the flame of the Spirit's in us. And I think sometimes unconfessed sin can be like a wet blanket on the flame of the Spirit. The good news is if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to cleanse us and forgive us, right? And so, Lord, forgive me for this. Forgive me for that. Thank you for forgiving me. Holy Spirit, fill me. We don't have to ask the Holy Spirit to come again and again. But I do think at times we can quench the Spirit. And we want to ask, say, Holy Spirit, fill me up. Holy Spirit, lead me. Holy Spirit, guide me. Holy Spirit, direct me. Holy Spirit, confirm what my next step should be. And if you're in a big, if you're in a time of challenge, I think there's value in having fellowship, someone to process with. But, you know, if you're in a process of discernment, I would ask the Holy Spirit to fill and lead and guide. And I would probably take a few days to fast and pray and just ask God to confirm those. That's what's on my mind for now. Melvin was the acting assistant police commissioner before he retired. And as a dear friend, honored he considers me one of his spiritual fathers. Melvin, if you would just take a moment just to share your observation of the importance of relationships like with Frank Kelly and, and his family, and, and also how you've seen that partnership in the community work to help bring some semblance of, of healing and hope in the community. I thoroughly enjoyed listening to both of you. Partnerships were very key for me. As you know, Dad, when I first became the commander in 2008 of the Eastern District, which was the worst part of Baltimore City, the most violent district, the most impoverished district, just so many ants with that district. I remember getting a vision from God between three and four o'clock in the morning, waking me out of a dead sleep and him giving me a vision. And, you know, I was scared and excited about, at the same time. But the scared part of me, and this is where I'm going to to answer your question, I didn't think I could do it because simply all I knew at that time were police and preachers, because I'm also a minister, as you know, that that assistant pastor. And I said, God, this is going to take everybody. Like God didn't know that. Right. I said, it's going to take everybody. I I don't know enough people. And God shut me down and simply said, if I gave you the vision, I'll give you the provisions. And literally, I mean, literally on a weekly, sometimes a daily basis, doors began to open. Like Matt came into my life. You came into my life. And then, of course, Frank and his brother John, that entire family came into my life. And God started putting people in my life that I had no business in my mind's eye being aligned with. Absolutely no business. And I could not believe when it came to the Kelly family, and particularly Frank, how genuine he was, how genuine his wife Gail was, how loving they were, how caring they were for a city that they really didn't have to, except God put it on his heart, care for. And a city that he wanted to sow in, and it blew me away. And I was just kind of fast forward. I just recognized that partnerships, I believe that I could not be an effective leadership God had taught me without effective partnerships and having faith and caring for people in general. And I recognized that Frank and I had something similar. We love people. And we love to be utilized by God to heal the brokenhearted and the contrite spirit. And so I said, God, this is wonderful. And so Frank is actually one of my very good friends today. And I thank God for him. And I'll just say this to you. You know, if anybody tries to do anything within their own strength, it just doesn't work. You know, God gives us each others to build out and to be uh, to build a testimony for him. And we could not have built that testimony in East Baltimore for a 40 year crime low year after year after year, if I didn't have great friendships and partnerships that were investing in the vision, right? And it wasn't always just into me, but investing in the vision. And that didn't mean always money. That means in wisdom and sound doctrine. And I just mean in some, some just, it just, it was incredible. But I will tell you this and I'll give it back to you, dad. 
you know, I, I recognize what a Jim Frank was for me and his entire family during the uprising of 2015. I've never really asked Frank for anything. I just was so honored that God would put somebody like this in my life. And like you two discussed earlier, when you meet men of his caliber, everybody's coming at them for money, right? And I knew that's not nothing I was going to do. I just wanted a genuine relationship with this man and people like him because they were glorifying God. And I knew that being a contest of people like this will make me better in the faith, make me better to be utilized by God. But during that 2015 uprise, I was so into it and so broken as the people of Baltimore City was broken, as the officers were becoming broken, I didn't even realize that I lost 13 pounds in the first two weeks of the uprising because I was nonstop trying to restore peace in the city of Baltimore. And I was working with the officers while working with the gangbangers, while working with the seniors, the, everybody. Everybody was crying. We were just me and my team out there hugging. And it was Frank and his brother literally saw me broken and I could I didn't even know it. I didn't know I was drained. I didn't know it was taken bearing on me. I didn't realize I was being under stress and duress. And Frank finally called me one day and said, hey, listen, you know, he and his brother are incredible and said, listen, um, I need you to come back and I'm not going to get into it, but I just need you to come by and just grab some keys to something. I need you to go offline, go offline, you and your family, because you need to be restored. And so mm -hmm. while I'm trying to heal other people and restore other people, and not worrying about me, here's a man of God seeing something that I didn't even see in myself and said, you need to be restored. People are pulling on you in every direction they were and pulling me down from the commissioner on down. And it was because of that, I began to get renewed strength. And so I'll never forget that, how, how generous he's been and how honest and sincere he's been as a friend to me and my family. And for that, I know I have a friend for life. And I just thank the God that's in him and the God that's on his life and his family. And I love him to life. Him, Gail, those kids, I absolutely love them. Like, I, he don't even know it. I got a picture of their entire family because I snuck a picture of his picture <laughs> his mantle when the kids was much younger. And I occasionally I look at that and I look at it and I say, that's a God family. That's Amen. a God family. That's, that's an epitome of a God family. That's somebody you can look up to, a family you can look up to, and you can strive to be a family like that family. So I thank God for him. And you know how I feel about you, Doug, Lisa, and Ashley. So... I just thank God for the incredible people he put in my life. Some of you are even on the line. My twin, Matt. I see Ben on there. So I'll shut up with that and I'll pass the ball back to you. God bless you. Appreciate and love you to life, Frank. And uh, Thanks, Thank you. Thanks, Chief. And one of the things I was sharing at the Houston Police Department's Academy the other day is that in the midst of the corporate trauma that communities go through, there are those who have been the victims but then there is an element of things like in Uvalde that I'll be at uh, tomorrow night and Thursday shooting there at Robb Elementary School, that there is also a corporate trauma that takes place. And you have carried that burden together as community leaders and pastors working together in your community. In that corporate trauma, you have found ways like bringing all the inner city kids to a camp chief and and what you've all done as a community that each of these kids who maybe would not trust law enforcement would go to these camps and every one of their camp counselors were law enforcement. They didn't know that till the last day. And on the last day, all these ones they had relationship with come out in their uniforms and the kids' eyes. I saw the news clips at you that reported about what you've done. The kids' eyes opened up like they were like real people, and that, but they're law enforcement and and then Matt doing the days of hope throughout the community that each of you have done those where the community comes together and going into some very difficult places to bring an element of God's presence, the ministry of presence that each of you have been able to partner with. That's the good news behind all the bad news most people never hear about. So I thank God for that. And so Matt, would you just close out in a couple of thoughts and then pray for Frank and his business and, and pray for all of us. I sure will, man. Everybody, let's get ready to pray together. And if, uh, if I can just encourage you, go ahead where you're at, close your eyes, if you will, unless you're driving, keep your eyes open, but just take a moment to reflect how blessed are we. Listen to Frank's testimonies, listening to Doug's testimony and story, listening to Chief Russell share the things he shared. I know there are a number of things in each of our lives that the Lord has been reminding us of and stirring in our hearts. Can we just take a minute to thank them in your own 
way, where you're at, thank him. Say, thank you, Lord. Thank you that you, you had something in store for me that I exceeded my expectation or what I could have thought. And uh, regardless of where things are going to this point right now, every one of us could tell hours worth of stories and testimony of how we've seen God working in our lives, working in our families, working in the places that we work and we minister. God, you are at work among us, and we thank you for that. Just thank them. Maybe that's some people, maybe some faces pop up in your mind while you're thanking them of family, of coworkers. Maybe of some of those who have caused you to, you know, iron sharpens iron, have caused you to be sharper, whether that was through a little bit of rubbing together or through words of encouragement and mentor. Just give them thanks for a minute. There's so much to thank him for. So much. So, Father, we thank you where you brought us from and where you have us now. And we thank you that we know you, that we get to abide in you, that we get to walk together in this, looking at just these folks on this call, that you would bring us together for such a time as this. What a blessing. Father, I want to thank you for Frank, and I'm going to say Doug and Chief, because I know all three of these men well. I thank you that within them is a deep abiding love for you. And in that deep abiding love, as they've drawn close to you, you've drawn close to them, you've increased an anointing, uh, just amazing ability and willingness to share your love with others. I mean, they're generous. They're generous with everything each of those men have. They give because they know it's yours. But Father, everybody on this call is generous because of your goodness. And I'm so grateful that we are content when we're in you, when we're abiding in you. There's contentment, there's safety. We know that there's more than enough. (laughs) And so I just thank you for that spirit of generosity that moves up among the Somebody Cares Network family. And Lord, we just commit to you what we have in our hands. I've watched in these lives when we have things in our hands that you blessed us with, we surrender it to you, just like when the disciples and Jesus kind of feed the 5,000. We surrender these things to you. You bless it, multiply it, and allow us to share in sharing it with everybody and handing it out and pouring it out. Man, what a joy to be a vessel that gets to pour out, be a part of pouring out and seeing the goodness of God all across their lives. And Father, I know for Frank and Gail and their household and their abundance of, of their media family and beyond and the ministry family that they have, I know, I know that that river runs deep of your goodness and your grace and your love. And Lord, I ask you just to pour on these men and these women on this call even more of your goodness because they're people who are faithful. Frank said he wanted to be found faithful. And in that faithfulness, that only comes because he wants to abide in you and he's content in who you are. And so, Lord, I thank you for that. And I ask you to increase You are so good, Lord. It's like Doug says, we don't want to stop, but we're going to pause for now. But Lord, we give you absolutely all the glory and honor for who you are. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 We hope you enjoyed this episode of A Word in Season with Doug Stringer and Friends and ask you to prayerfully consider supporting the ministry at somebodycares.org or by texting your donation amount to 805-422-7348. Please join us again for A Word in Season with Doug Stringer and Friends.